welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community. Hello and welcome to Polygamer Podcast, episode number 69 for Wednesday, August 9th, 2017. I'm your host, Ken Gagne. Do you need diverse games? I know I do, and few people have done as much to advocate for that cause as today's guest, Tanya DePass. Hello, Tanya. Hey, Ken. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Good. Enjoying this uh, Chicago summer, you know, basking in, in the evening heat. Ah, uh, yes. It's not much cooler here in Boston. Yeah. I just like, I like summer, but I'm also kind of over summer. <laughs> Given some of the winters we've had here in Boston, I'm not in a rush to see the sunshine go away. Very true. I, I remember going to Paxi's in Boston, still seeing snow in March, so I, I can leave winter as far away as we can get it. It's true. Rumor has it that Pax East next year is going to be April 6th to the 8th, so hopefully that will be in a safe zone where there won't be much snow. Oh, perfect. I can actually make it a birthday trip next year. Awesome. Oh, well, in case I forget, happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you. So, Tanya, you have so many titles. You are so accomplished in the world of video game advocacy. I'm not quite sure how to introduce you except as the founder of I Need Diverse Games. What is I Need Diverse Games? So, I Need Diverse Games went from a hashtag that went a little bit viral to a community that is curated online, and now it is a nonprofit that I run um, in Chicago. So, we're 501c3. We do things like send people to the Game Developers Conference. We've got a blog. Um, we stream occasionally on Twitch. We do a bunch of other things, talk a lot on Twitter, try to boost folks that are doing the same work or people that may not get as much exposure to to what they're doing in the gaming space. Um, we try to sponsor other conferences and conventions and make sure that, that people have the opportunities to get their work seen and be out there. There are a lot of people who advocate for diversity in games, but most people do it as a tangent to enjoying games or on the side in addition to their day job, you have made this your life's work pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so for those that don't know my background, a very brief history, um, I worked in higher ed for many, many years before that worked in the private sector. And due to some, some downsizing, unfortunate uh, things that happened in my day job in higher ed, um, as of December 2015, this is now my day job. And it, it's worked out. You know, thank you again to my Patreon supporters who helped me maintain this as a full-time day job. I know a lot of people are not lucky enough to do what they they enjoy and love as a day job. Um, so it's given me the flexibility to travel way more than I could before, to to write for publications, to, you know, be able to talk to folks, take on some contracting work, some freelance work. And so I've been very, very lucky in almost two years to now take to now do what was a passion and something personally important to me as my day job as something that I can say this is what I do and not have it be a side project or not have it be a second full-time job you mentioned December 2015 as when you were sort of forced into doing this full-time I think that was just a day or two after you and I were on a panel together at Gamer X West Yes, yes, it was. I, I had not been home a whole day from Gamer X3 when that, when that went down. So, you know, it was going from that facetious, I kind of don't want to ever go back to work to, oh, look, I don't have to go back to a day job ever again, or at least not for the near future. <laughs> Be careful what you wish for. Yeah, but it actually worked out because I was getting to the point where I Need Diverse Games was literally a second full time 
job that was not paid, that was taking a lot of resources and free time. Sleep was a commodity I was no longer familiar with. And it, it worked out. The community um, really supports what we do, you know, through a Patreon for Diverse Games, through donations, through other things. And I've been incredibly lucky, incredibly fortunate to do this as my job. And, you know, it, it's scary to lose your job, especially when you're not planning on it. Um, and you're kind of forced off that ledge, but, you know, it worked out. You mentioned that you travel to a lot of conventions, and we mentioned briefly PAX and Gen Con, but you also participate in the organization of those events, such as GamerX and OrcaCon, is that correct? Correct. So this year in January, I was a guest of honor at OrcaCon, the second one that happened up in Everett, Washington, which is very close to Seattle. And I've joined the OrcaCon staff as the programming coordinator for this year. So, you know, for folks listening, you can still get in uh, panels for OrcaCon if you want to run a game. But this year, for the second year, a lot of the organizing fell to just a few people. And um, it's something I do. I, I like making sure there's good content because for conventions, content is often the heart of what brings people. And I'm just going to say it. There's a reason folks say Seattle's so white. And even at a convention that was tabletop focused and the aim was diversity and people of color were the guests of honor, it still was a very white convention, mostly due to location. Going to the West Coast is not cheap. And coming right after the holidays, I'm sure that was a factor in it. Um, so I offered and Donna took me up on the offer. And so now I'm helping with programming for OrcaCon and I continue on as in my role as diversity liaison for GamerX. And we're in the middle of uh, planning GamerX East year two. Folks who have been listening to this podcast for a while know about GamerX. I've had Matt Kahn on the show a couple of times. It's a all-inclusive game convention that was originally focused on the LGBT community. But OrcaCon, I think it's a little bit newer. I backed it on Kickstarter, but for those who are not familiar with OrcaCon, can you tell us a little bit about what it is? Sure. OrcaCon is a tabletop convention. I'm sorry, by Donna Pryor. Donna Pryor and her husband, because she believes in diversity in tabletop, which, you know, is still very much a, a older white cis male dominated hobby, at least from what we get to see in things like advertisements, things like that. And this was the second year that it ran, um, second year with Kickstarter. And what she did was her guests of honor, she focused on diversity, people of color in the, in the tabletop space, doing either games writing, running games, uh, creating games, in my case, uh, diversity advocacy. This upcoming year, the focus is on indigenous folks in the tabletop space, and I believe in 2019, the focus is on queer folks in the tabletop space. So it, it's a tabletop-focused event that is going beyond the usual, hey, let's just get together and play D&D for four days straight. So I really enjoyed it, because I've had enough bad experiences with tabletop groups and going to tabletop and gaming stores where I kind of had pushed aside my tabletop roots, but seeing people that were there to enjoy it and the conversations I had and the panels that I had was enough to kind of bring me back to it. Oh, that's great. So even though the geography lent it to being primarily a a little bit whiter than we would have liked, it was still a successful event. Yes, definitely. Because I had some I had some good conversations, got a chance to actually meet some of the Wizards of the Coast folks, because a lot of them are based out on the West Coast and in Seattle and adjacent areas, and made some good connections, but also just had a chance to to kind of go back to my roots, because I started gaming with D&D First Edition, you know, and then I, I grew up with gaming, I grew up with ColecoVision and Atari and, and arcades. 
So it was good to get back to that, to, to rolling a D20, to having that imaginative session with folks and just making up stories as we go. Uh, that sounds awesome. I have played only a little bit of D&D, and I, like you at one point, it, it's been decades since I played it as a kid. Just hearing you talk about it makes me want to get back into it. And it's a lot easier now because there are sites where you can play online with your friends, so you don't need to all literally be sitting around the same table anymore. Is it easier, though? Because coincidentally, just last night, I was looking at my AD&D 2nd Edition Player's Handbook, and it is the, a massive tome, especially I'm sure I saw it that way when I was just a kid. Are there still that many rules I have to learn to play D&D? <laughs> um, there's still rules, but, you know, it is. it has been streamlined. It's a lot better. And I think they really realized that, you know, having to do a lot of math just to play a game was putting people off. So the, the core rulebook is not the hefty tome it used to be. And, you know, there's PDFs now. You don't even have to carry around a heavy rulebook. I think it's a lot easier to pick up now, to, to write, read through the rulebook, um, do as minimal math as possible, because I know math is essential. I'm not a big fan of it. You know, just sit down and, and enjoy it, because I'm in it for the story. I think it's a lot easier to go back and pick it up if you decide to do that now. And what edition are they up to? Five. Five. Okay, got it. So you're doing this full time, all these different events and the diversity and the I need diversity in games. You mentioned that one of the things that allows you to do that is Patreon, which full disclosure, mm -hmm. I either currently back or have backed because you have two Patreons. Is that correct? Correct. So one is for me to basically pay living expenses so that I can continue to do this work full time. Because if I had a regular day job, there's no way I could do all this and run I need diverse games. And then all the funding for what I Need Diverse Games does comes through a separate Patreon because we are 501c3. We have a separate bank account. It all goes right back out in the community. We really don't have money sitting around at any given time. When we go to conventions or when we say, hey, we're going to sponsor something for a couple hundred bucks or, or maybe send swag, that's where all that money goes. We could probably do a whole podcast on this question, but briefly, is it difficult to become a nonprofit? Um, it depends. If you're already established, already been doing the work, and you can't do the easy form, which is a very abbreviated form that you can file electronically for much less money. I would say so, because then you have to do the 1023. You have to do the full one. And depending on, like, I think your revenue, that depend that determines your filing fee. And it's like a 20 or 30 page document before you even add all your attachments and, and what you've been doing and and proof of of your organization. If you're still fairly new, fairly small, you can do a 1023 easy, which is all electronic. It's only 275 versus the four something or 850 that you need to pay by check and then wait up to nine, wait up to 180 days for the paper filing. You know, assuming there are no mistakes that you don't need to get an attorney, depending on what you do and who and what the rules are for the state of the person who's running it, because at least for me, I do, I do file in Illinois as a not-for-profit entity, and then doing that, then file for the 501c3 designation, and it's still easy to screw up. Apparently, it's so easy to screw up. People check the wrong box and wind up as a foundation like I did, and it's so common that they've got a script on, this is what you do to fix it. Wow. Just hearing that makes me glad I've never had to go through it myself. Yeah, it's it's a thing. It, <laughs> it can definitely be a thing, but you know what? That's really the only way to kind of do things because we're not a corporation. We're not an LLC. We're not selling anyone a product. And once we get our designation corrected, then it makes it a lot easier to do things like Amazon Smile to for people to participate in their company giving programs because then we show up in the charity database 
and people can go, hey, if I do 25 bucks a paycheck, my company matches it, and there's your tax-deductible donation and giving for the year. That's awesome. So it sounds like the benefits certainly outweigh the inconvenience of having to file all that paperwork. Definitely. Excellent. So we could chat for hours about any and all of these things, but I want to focus because... Otherwise, like I said, we'll be here for hours on (laughs) the most recent event in your life, which was the discontinuation of the Fresh Out of Tokens podcast, which you had been hosting for, was it three, two, two, three years? Two years, yeah. Wow. I mean, you have so many episodes, I assumed it was longer than two years. It felt like more than two years. (laughs) So you did, I think, 93 episodes, was it? Uh, 95, 96, if you count the the very short episodes goodbye episode did you ever feel like oh i should just stick it out for another month and get to 100 yes and no but i knew my travel schedule wouldn't really be conducive to that and you know at a certain point you you kind of know when it's time to stop doing something sure you realize that you know your heart's in it but time money effort energy isn't isn't coming with you right so let's talk about what was the Fresh Out of Tokens podcast in those two years. What what was it you were doing? I assume you weren't just sitting around chatting with friends about what you were playing every week. <laughs> uh, no. So funny story. The the podcast actually started because we're gonna. I was gonna talk to Chris Algu of Brooklyn Gamery, and Chris was like, "Was oh, this a podcast? Is it a written thing?" And I'm like, "Sure, it's a podcast." And then spent a couple hours putting together a podcast and finding a hosting and and getting someone to help with audio editing. And that first episode sounds terrible. Sounds like we were in a can because I had to go find a Skype recorder and I didn't know what to look for. But going forward, we decided, hey, this was kind of fun. Let's do it again. And so with the exception of a few episodes every week, there was a different guest that David and I talked to until David left the show. And, you know, we talked about everything from diversity, from music, indie developers, AAA developers. I was very lucky to get folks who worked at Bioware at the time or still work at Bioware. Um, I was, you know, lucky to get someone who worked at ArenaNet or works at ArenaNet, I should say. And we talked about all these different things and their, and someone's, you know, impact their identity on their work and why certain representation was important or just things where it's like, you know, these are people that felt like they, no one would want to hear them that they had something to say, but no one would give them any kind of acknowledgement for the work they were doing sometimes. Because when you're a smaller developer, it's hard to get that. Even, you know, even a few minutes on a podcast or get a mention in an article, unless your game, whatever you're doing, kind of blows up for good or ill. Um, so every week, having these great conversations, I think the the best episode stat-wise and also conversation-wise was Jim Sterling. We talked to him for two hours, and he's just such a warm, wonderful person to chat with. And, you know, there are people who watch his videos and think they know him, just like anyone else who who was known on the internet. And chatting with him was just, like, so cool, and it was like talking with with an old friend. Um, You know, I got a chance to talk with Zoe Quinn. Sorry, y'all, for for not ever getting the second second half of the episode out, but technical failures happen. But the episode that really, two of the episodes that really stuck with me were the POC, or Critiquing Games as POC with Austin Walker, with Catherine Cross, and Trick Musa. That conversation was so, I, I don't want to say empowering because that sounds trite, but it was one of those conversations where it was like, these are people 
I really admire. These are people whose opinion means a lot to me. And we're having this conversation about something that is so vital to all of us and so important. And I felt really honored that people would take the time out to talk to us, a relatively new show. And then the other one was talking to Charles Webb about Mafia 3, because anyone who's listened to me for five minutes, other than Bioware games, knows I'm a big nerd for Mafia 3. And to get a chance to talk with Charles and about the importance of, of what the team did and, and the writing and what it meant to him to work on this game was something that I will always, always treasure because, again, relatively unknown show, and yet we got a chance to talk to, to someone who worked on this amazing, huge game. It sounds like you've had an all-star cast over these two years. Bioware, Mafia, Zoe Quinn. I'm going to ask you the question that I get asked most often about my show. <laughs> How do you find your guests? Do you go up to them at conventions? Do you just tweet at them? Are these friends of yours that you're calling in favors? Uh, for the most part, I tweeted people. Like, I literally got David Gator because I saw the IGN article or interview with him about Dorian, the character he wrote for Inquisition. And I was like, I would love to talk to him about this. And I tweeted and I tagged him. I'm like, I've seen the man. I've tweeted him like once or twice. He probably doesn't know I exist. Half hour later, he's like, I'll do it if you're serious. And I was like, what? <laughs> okay. So then two weeks later, we're chatting about Dorian and we talked for almost three hours. Wow. Yeah. And I don't think we cut much, if anything, from that conversation, because, again, it was a, a chance to talk to someone outside of the confines of Twitter and what people think they know about you when they see you online or the assumptions people make because you've got Bioware or Beamdark or wherever you're working attached to your name. And it was a very heartfelt conversation. And, you know, when you talk to someone, you can tell when they're genuine, you can tell when they're being real. And the, the convo we had, and we specifically talked about being in the, in the studio when they recorded a portion of dialogue for Dorian, the character he wrote, that emotion was real. And, you know, we were on, I think we were on video chat so I could actually see him. And you know when someone's faking it and the real, very real look on his face and the, and the way his voice changed. We talked about that. That was one of those moments that you're not going to forget because you rarely get that in a conversation for someone to be so candid with you on a podcast, I think. I had a moment like that on my own show where I was interviewing the creators of That Dragon Cancer. That was the only episode that I recorded where they had their video camera on and I did not. And I told them, you know, this is audio only. You can turn off your camera if you want. And they said, no, no, this is fine. And I could see the anguish in their face as they talked about this game. It's, uh, it's really humbling that people would be so vulnerable with us on our podcasts. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's something that I think a lot of people may not expect when they say, Oh, I'm going to do a podcast. Cause I think people have a, a view of podcasting as, Oh, I'm just going to sit here and talk all this shit with my friends or, you know, wherever it is, depending on what, what your podcast is going to be about. But when you have a guest, when you have this conversation, especially about something like, that Dragon Cancer, which, disclosure, I have not played it. I know it would destroy me. I, I can't. Or when you get someone like David who's talking about a character that means so much to him to have created and written for. Or when you when we were talking with Austin and Turek and Catherine, those moments where it's like, this is something you can't replicate and something that you're not going to expect. So it means a lot for me, for every single person who came on the mic and, you know, opened up and shared stories and talked about things that were important to them because there's a vulnerability in any interview, in any time you talk about something that means anything to you. 
and especially um, when I had Samazon for the year anniversary, you know, this is someone whose work has made me cry a lot and someone I wish had been around when I was a teenager. So it kind of goes both ways. That admiration is there and it's, you kind of got to keep a, a lid on it to be professional, but you know, it's, it's also just very humbling to do that. I was looking through your back catalog of episodes. You have 90 plus episodes. I have almost 70. I was surprised that we have only, I think, three guests who overlap. Zoe Quinn, Matt Kahn, and Carolyn Van Esseltine. Really? Yeah. I, I mean, I thought there would have been more, but maybe that's because I thought maybe there's less diversity in games that we all have to talk to the same people. Maybe there's actually so many people that there is no overlap, which is encouraging. Possibly. I mean, I do. I did get a lot of people... That, you know, rarely did I see them on other shows that maybe spawn on me, on yours, on, you know, other places. Because there's not a lot of people focusing on diversity in the podcast space. You know, that that's where I think our shows have a, have a different vibe and have a different uh, audience in that way. Um, you know, now there's Nerds of Prey, Black Girl Nerds focuses on a lot of things. But there's not a lot of people specifically talking about gaming and the diversity within the space or lack thereof. So in a way, it doesn't surprise me that we didn't have a lot of overlap, but it also makes me happy because that means there's enough people to for everyone to talk to. And that actually brings up a question that I asked you at our GX3 panel. I loved your answer. I hope you have <laughs> forgotten it because I want to get it fresh, <laughs> which is... Like you said, there are not many podcasts talking about diversity. Most podcasts about games are talking about games because games are fun. They're why we're here. It's because we love to play them. And it's fun to play them and it's fun to hear people talk about them. Talking about diversity isn't necessarily fun, especially when you're getting into the hard stuff like that dragon cancer or Twitter harassment. So how do you make your podcast entertaining so that people want to listen to it when it's not necessarily a fun topic? Um, well, I, I don't, I actually don't remember what I said because it's been almost three years. Great. <laughs> um, but, you know, on the one hand, people know what they're getting when they listen to your show. They know what you are trying to talk about. And anyone who's doing a podcast, if they're streaming, if they're, if they're having these discussions and spaces, fun is a small part of it. You know, you can have fun, you can joke around, you can do whatever, but fun isn't always the object of your episode. Sometimes it's a very heavy episode, like when you talk to the devs who did that Dragon Cancer, like when we talked about Mafia 3 and, and the heavy, heavy things in there and, and what it means to be a black person then and a black person now dealing with these very same issues. And if someone expects you to be, you know, happy fun time, rainbows and sprinkles all the time, 24-7, then maybe they shouldn't be listening to your show because there's sometimes when you just have to get in the weeds, you have to get dark, you have to be blunt because... You know, I, I talk a lot about the things I experience. I talk about the things I experience as as a black person living in the U.S., especially under the current administration. You know, being a queer woman, all the other things that I've done and dealt with in my life. And it's not always fun. It's On occasion, you have those episodes, you have those conversations that are the polar opposite of fun. And then, you know, hopefully you can lighten the mood before things end, before that episode's over, before that guest leaves, before you cut off the mic. But diversity isn't always fun. Diversity is a hard fight. And, you know, even even now, um, I, I don't know if you saw this on, on Facebook, but I shared a, a thread from a group that 
I'm not part of, but someone sent it to me because, hey, people still send me stuff when I, when I tell them not to, with people arguing about an article. And it was a, it was a kind of old article about just overall diversity in games and how, again, the industry is not doing what it can do. It's not living up to its potential to actually be diverse and treat people well and have well-rounded characters. And the commentary from people that are supposedly indie developers, people that are lauded as so much more diverse and so much more, you know, caring about these issues was disheartening. It looked like looking at comments from August through October 2014. You know, the per- the pejorative use of SJW and and just flat out, oh, people are forcing developers to do this and people aren't going to be happy unless, you know, they've got the black, disabled, Latina, queer, trans, whatever. And it's like, there are people who like this who exist. I know that's far-fetched for you, but, you know, a, an article that lays out its premise and is pretty straightforward gets this derision even, you know, three years later. We're trying to still have these conversations. Shows that diversity is not fun. The fight for it's not fun. And it's exhausting. I see why people leave games. I see why lot of people, you know, give up the fight. Because at some point, you're just like, okay, nothing's changing. Nothing's shifting. Why do I keep doing this? So it isn't always fun. It isn't always bright and cheery. But, you know, as long, long as I have the energy to do it, I'm going to do it. And if people don't like the conversations they've heard on that show or, you know, shows that I guest on or shows that I occasionally pop on, pop up on, like spawn on me, then, you know, that's on them to work out. So if you created this podcast in order to advocate for diversity and to try to change that conversation and spotlight the work of diverse individuals in the gaming industry, how can you tell if your show was a success at that or not? Do you, Can you measure that in downloads or by less harassment on Twitter? Well, there's no correlation between the show's success and less, and less harassment on Twitter. And I honestly think sometimes that ramped it up depending on who was the guest. I think the success comes in the feedback and the response that came when I said I was ending the show, which, you know, if you say you're going to end something and that's when you get all the feedback from less than the usual people, it also kind of makes you wonder where was this feedback before? Because, you know, let's be honest, some days it feels useless. And if you don't get a review, you don't get even a, hey, that was a good episode or I really enjoyed that guest. It can kind of make you feel like, why am I doing this? You know, and, you know, I'm not trying to make a living off podcasting, but I enjoyed it. But um, it, it depends. Sometimes, you know, the, there's always the loyal folks who always comment, who always reply, who always made sure they got in questions. And then, you know, there's people who only respond based on what, what the guest is that week. But you can't really correspond that to Twitter harassment. I think that, that that's not a correlation causation one. That is pretty much a... I, I'm brown and I'm female and I said something people on the internet don't like because I'm brown and my female. So, oh, look, I have to stop. I have to turn on the feature where I mute anyone who I'm not following for a few days. So, yeah. So if that's not a good way to measure success, is there, I mean, you, you talked about feedback, which is qualitative and I agree immensely invaluable because it lets us know that we're being heard. But is there a quantitative way to measure success? Like, do you care about downloads? Are you looking at your analytics every week? Um, it would depend. I honestly stopped looking at that stuff because I know myself well enough where I would get obsessive about it and be like, oh, there's only X number of downloads and, and I know we had a really cool guest, so why aren't people listening this week? And 
it, it's hard. I think it's really hard to quantify success because, you know, so few people in any sphere and anything they're doing are going to be the folks that are a household name that get 20,000 Twitter followers or, you know, get recognized out the street. I, I think it's very hard to quantify success unless you're able, I mean, and this is a very cold way to look at it, but it's, are you making your living off what you're doing? So can I restart a podcast and make enough from that, either monetizing or whatever, or is someone going to pay me to come in and record a show every week? I think that's the the cold quantifier, The but it's always going to be qualitative data on, you never know when someone, when an episode will touch someone. Some of the most heartfelt things I got back from people, you know, early in the show, a year in, year and a half in, that to me, that's success. Because it shows that even if one person was touched by an episode, by a conversation, by a topic, you've someone has heard you. And that for me, that was a measure of success because I knew I was never going to get money off of podcasting. In fact, it cost me money. So I don't think there's a good quantitative reason, quantitative way to measure success unless you are that person who is checking your stats every week. Like, 12 hours after your episode is out, what's the numbers 24 hours later? Um, for me, it, it's, it's the human factor. And that's the, that for me, that's the quantifier too. Someone heard this episode, someone heard this conversation. They got a chance to hear someone that they admire, that they, they follow, that they look up to in a whole different light and got to learn more about them. That's success for me. If hearing from your audience that your podcast touched their lives or opened their minds and made them a little bit more, I don't know, open-minded, diverse, liberal, whatever, if that's mm-hmm. success for them, did you have that experience yourself with your podcast? Did you learn something about gaming or diversity from hosting this show? Are you a better person? I don't know if I'd say I'm a better person, but I definitely learned from people, especially when you when you talk to people that... <sighs> I'm trying to think of, the good, of a good way to phrase this. Um, so, you know, there are people that we see online and people think they know them based on what they see online, on Twitter, whatever, or what they put out. And getting a chance to have a one-on-one conversation with that person and seeing a side to them that the internet doesn't see, that the audience doesn't see, the fan base doesn't see, that to me was that moment. That to me, that was that feedback. And again, it was getting someone to agree to come on the show and having them open up, have that great discussion, and feeling comfortable enough to to want to have that real discussion with me, or me and David, and that's where the change came in. Because there are things that I changed my mind on, there are things that I learned about, uh, but I, I don't know if I'd say it made me a better person. I know that sounds cynical and terrible, but, you know... I'm I'm in my 40s. I'm pretty set in my ways. I can learn. I swear, y'all. But I I wouldn't go so far as to say it overall made me a better person. It, it made me a different person, helped me grow. But better is debatable. I love that you say that you grew as a person because I think we all have room to grow. Mm-hmm. We all do. And I actually um I've been watching some Cat Black's videos, more recent videos, catching up. And one that really interested me was when apology isn't enough. And is it okay to generalize? Those are two videos I spent a little time with. And, you know, especially with the apology isn't enough or isn't apology enough. She talked about growth. She talked about all the things that she said that were, that were shitty when she started out as a YouTuber and the things that she grew up on and, and grew out of and realized and, and learned from. And that's the kind of things that I'm thinking about where maybe I had a stupid belief and having this person on the show made me grow out of it or maybe think about it from a different angle. 
Because again, you know, we all can grow. We all have the potential. And I think we all should be learning because, you know, I am sure I am wrong on 950 million things, but if I don't open myself to this conversation or myself to hearing this person out, that is not to say listen to a harasser and someone that wants to waste my time, um, but someone who I can have that conversation with that is doing so in good faith and, and giving me that trust, that's where the growth comes in at. So we all have a lot to learn about diversity. On a more technical side, what did you learn about podcasting? As a result of fresh out of tokens, <laughs> um, I learned that I'm really bad at audio editing and I kind of <laughs> hate it. Um, but you know, it. I learned that there is a definitely, definitely a quality difference in your equipment. Um, I noticed the change between that starter mic that I used and and the Yeti Pro that I now have. You know, good headphones, making sure that things are quiet, um, learning how to kind of write out your script for the show and. And, you know, ways to approach people. It helped me be a better communicator, I think, because they're, you know, you learn how to approach people to be on your show, not just a tweet like, hey, I like your stuff, be on my show, which I did with some people, but I also knew, kind of knew them first. But it helped me with that negotiation skill. It helped me on the technical side of, okay, I have to realize that, you know, gain, gain actually means something. It's not just a word I heard people say who podcast before I started doing it. You know, it made me think about these things and, you know, does my sound, How's my sound? You know, you know, am I, am I too loud? Am I too squeaky or, or raspy or whatever? So it it made me think a lot about voice, tone of voice, how I speak. Um, so it made me think about that stuff and, and I think helped me improve my presentation skills because of how I speak now versus, um, just how I would normally get on a panel and talk, which is, you know, I, I think about presentation voice versus just my normal everyday speaking voice. How are they different? Are, when you're on a panel, is it less conversational? Um, it depends on the panel and the topic, but I, I, I find myself slipping into almost professional mode voice. You know, so for those that are, that are listening who may not, who may be totally lost at this moment, um, what I'm referring to is code switching. So, you know, professional Tanya that speaks a certain way and has a certain tone of voice and has to, you know, modulate her tone because of the way things are in, in offices when you are a black person, especially a black woman versus the, I'm hanging out with my buddies. This is how I talk. We're having a few beers. Or, you know, who am I talking to? Is this a CEO of a company? Is this someone who is, you know, maybe a professional role model and I want to speak a certain way? So it makes me just very aware of how I'm talking. And I I have a terrible habit of speaking very quickly, especially when I'm nervous. So it, it's made me slow down, modulate my voice, learn about tone, learn about the ways in which I pronounce things. So that is a technical part of podcasting because people need to be able to understand you versus the very casual way I may speak when I'm on a panel. But again, still have those kind of, oh, I I ran together my words. I talked too fast. I was nervous or I use a lot of technical terms or my my Midwestern twang kind of came through. So it just made me very aware of those things. I think one of the hardest things for a new podcaster to get used to is listening to their own voice during editing. Mm Mm-hmm. Very much so. Do you have any tricks that helped you get over that? No. <laughs> Not even gonna lie. Um, you know, and what's weird is that, you know, I stream, I'm I still guest on podcasts, I still, you know, hop on spot on me, and it's still very weird to hear my own voice, um, either in the editing process or just in general, you know, when I do when I do guest spots or if I do an interview and I kind of go back and listen back to to the recording. It's very strange for me. I I have no good advice. I'm sorry, y'all. 
<laughs> now, be honest with me. Are you going to listen to this podcast? I will. I, I will sit there and I'll have that. I will sit there and criticize everything about my voice because I'm also watching the spikes in audacity as we record. So part of me is like, ooh, that's going to sound squeaky. That's going to like be really harsh. I mean, you're editing it, but my brain is just like, now I'm kind of trained to look at the spice like, ooh, that's a little, that's a little high. Maybe I should, maybe I should lower my voice or modulate better. So it makes you kind of hyper aware of things when, when you are a podcaster and you are doing, like when you're recording a podcast or you're editing or maybe you're, you're chatting with someone and you are used to looking at Audacity and looking for certain things. Cause like I said, I'm not very good at audio editing. But there are things I know how to look for. So shout out to Khalif Adams who patiently helped me with learning to edit. But it's it kind of it's hard to turn that brain off because I'm like, ooh, edit brain is is clicking in, and I don't even have to edit this episode. I would say the thing I like the least about hosting a podcast is the editing. It is laborious. It is not fun. The end result makes it worth it. But I wish I could just hand it to somebody else to do. Definitely, definitely. I wish I could have just said. Okay, I'm going to record this and hand it over to someone to to do. But, you know, part of me is like this is this is the conversation I've had. I want to kind of hoard it and make sure it's up to the spec I want because I'm that nerd. Um, but also just good editing costs money and that was just was not in the budget. In your final episode, your farewell episode, you mentioned the editing as being one of the things that took up a lot of time. The weekly schedule, which is ambitious. I did my show every other week, and now it's only monthly. Mm-hmm. Also, just trying to find guests, which I agree can be exhausting, especially after you've gone through 90 people and you're still looking for original guests. Was there one tipping point that led you to say, this show has to end? Um, I, I don't know if it was one particular tipping point, but I realized after my month of travel in April and you know, kind of coming back to it after getting home, and recording those last few episodes, I didn't miss not having to get up and edit audio the next day or that same day, depending on how late we went. Um, because doing it by yourself is exhausting. And I think a lot of that is what drove me to it. Because on the one hand, you know, I had offers from many lovely people to help, but I, I freely admit I'm, I'm going to be that pedantic nerd about it. I'm going to be that perfectionist about it. And I, I, this is why I'm not a supervisor of anyone. Um, because I want things done a certain way and I want them done when I want them and I can be very inflexible. So I didn't want to put anyone through that. Um, especially after, you know, basically doing the show by myself for a few months. And that was kind of tipping point of, I have a week off. There's no guest. I don't have to record a show. I actually have my Wednesday night back. And I think that feeling of freedom versus missing doing the show after a couple weeks in a row is is what made me kind of nail it. So now you have your Wednesday nights back. What are you going to do with the reclaimed time? What am I going to do, Pinky? <laughs> <laughs> Same thing you do every <laughs> night, Tanya. <laughs> um, it depends. There's actually a ladies' night comic meetup that happens every Wednesday here in Chicago. I could actually start going to... Um, I could switch to a stream night to Wednesday instead of Tuesday and Thursday because part of that was um, because of the Wednesday night recording schedule. Um, I could just go to sleep early or, you know, go out and hang out, go to a movie, go to dinner with friends, you know, or, you know, if I'm traveling, then obviously I'm traveling. But if I'm at home, I could, I could just do kind of nothing and it'll be glorious instead of 
having to be on a schedule every single Wednesday night. But you're also going to be using some of that time to appear on another podcast, I understand. Yes, so I am I am a recurring guest on Spawn on Me, and they record on Thursday nights. Um, and it's actually late enough where I could go out and do stuff while I'm home by nine, my time. But yeah, Khalif and I talked for a while, and I was like, hey, you know, I'm thinking about... Because I, 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 I kind of bug Khalif about, you know, hey, I'm thinking about doing this thing, let me, let me pick your brain. And then he and I talked about, you know, what do you think about maybe uh, joining the show as a guest, like a frequent guest, rather. I was like, that's cool. And so it it was a good transition into, yes, I'm ending the show I was doing by myself that was no longer a labor of love into, I get to show up and hang out with people that I know I like and have great conversations, turn over the audio and go about my day. <laughs> so it was a natural transition. How will your focus on Spawn on Me be different from Fresh Out of Tokens? Will you be having the same kinds of conversations or pursuing the same agenda? Um, similar agenda because the guys are, are still talking about diversity, but they were talking about it from a very cis male centric point of view. And so having um, a female voice on the show can, is really going to change the tone of conversations. I think, especially like the, the episode that will come out after we're recording, but before this goes out, because there's just certain things where it's like, you know, being a dude affects your worldview, and there are going to be things you don't think about. There are going to be things that don't occur to you as a, as a dude when you're having these conversations. And we're still diversity-focused, but now it's a it's a kind of fan-out effect of, of several different people with all different backgrounds having these conversations. I can be like, ha-ha, no, no, actually, maybe you should think about how you phrase that. Or think about, you know, you know for me, as a black woman, blah, blah, blah. Um, so still a conversation, but more in a group setting. You mentioned that you can just pass the audio off to them, and you'll have had a great conversation with people that you know you like. Those are some of the benefits of having a co-host, which I understand you used to have on Fresh Out of Tokens. Yes. Did you ever think about replacing that role and having somebody help you out with Fresh Out of Tokens? Um, I did, but I, I again, was kind of like, I, do I want to go through the hassle of kind of going through people and seeing who I click with, who I don't click with? Because you can, you can talk about it all day, but until you actually record with someone and see how they work and see their work ethic, it's hard to say, yes, you're, you're my new co-host. And it's like, I didn't want to go through that trial period again. Or, or you know, what if someone is all gung-ho to do it and then life happens? I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to do it by myself for a while because then I have just total control and, you know, I burnt out on that, so more the fool is me. So what advice would you give for somebody who wants to start a gaming podcast, ostensibly one about diversity? I would say think about, you know, what is your message? What are you going to do? Are you going to be a podcast where you try to have these conversations that you aren't seeing? Are you going to see what's kind of being talked about and, and use that as your jumping point? Are you going to have a guest? Not have a guest. You know, what is your focus? What realistically, how often can you record? What kind of equipment sets your disposable? Are you disposable? Are you going to spend money on equipment? You know, are you willing to put in the time and effort? Do you already know about audio editing? You know, what is your strength? What is your weakness? Think about that before you start a podcast, no matter what your focus is. And then if it's about diversity, who are you? You know, are you a white person who wants to talk about diversity? Are you a person of color? Are you queer? Are you trans or divergent? You know, all of the different aspects of identity. And, you know, let's say you are a, a white person. Let's talk about diversity. Are you amplifying voices of people unlike yourself? 
are you talking about this? Are you bringing this conversation as one white person talks to another white person who may not believe diversity is important? You know, what is your focus and what is your angle? Because other people are doing it, but your own voice is unique. What is your, what is your perspective that you are going to bring to the airwaves? No, I think that's all very valuable. I think having a mission in mind that you want to accomplish, even if it's not a quantifiable one, as we discussed, just knowing what it is you're doing and, and why you're in that space will make everything maybe not easier, but it'll give you guidance, it'll give you direction, and it'll help you justify to yourself the huge investment in time and energy that it does take to host a podcast. Definitely. If you don't have a focus, it will come through, it will show. And, you know, think about it. Realistically, you don't have to be someone who has a show every single week. You could do it every two weeks or even a month if that is your bandwidth or many episodes. Every episode doesn't have to be an hour, hour and a half. Because um, I know some people have shorter episodes. Sometimes they just talk and talk about what's going on. You know, think about it. Because having a guest is more work than not having a guest. If you were just talking for 20 minutes about X topic, record it, make sure it sounds good. You can put out a podcast pretty quickly. So think, I mean, really sit down and think about the pros and cons. And, you know, do you have a quiet space to record? Do you have roommates? Do you live in a very busy part of wherever you live? Is that going to be a factor in having to edit the audio later and get rid of all the little city noises that you hear in the background? So there's just so much that goes into it. And a lot of those things can and should be learned on the fly. I'm sure, as you said, if somebody were to go back and listen to our first episodes, they wouldn't be very impressed with the audio quality. Yeah. Yeah, because that was one of the things, one of the, one of the feedback things that was interesting because I wasn't actually the person doing the audio, and yet a lot of the complaints were about the audio, not the content, just the audio. And it's like, so you've seen that a black person's involved, and you're going to yell at them even though they're not the person doing the audio. Okay. Was it clear to them who they should have been yelling at? Um. Well, they shouldn't have been yelling at either one of us. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're right. You're absolutely right. I'm sorry. No, that's fine. But, you know, it's very clear, you know, if you if you bother to look at the site and look at the page of the podcast that, you know, Co's pictures are there. But again, you know, it's it's the burden of being brown and, and forward and, and out front on the internet. People go, oh, well, you know, you clearly don't know what you're doing, fragile woman, so let me correct you. I'm kind of surprised that podcasts generate that much harassment because I've talked to a few people about this and we were somewhat under the impression that podcasts, they're harder to find and to consume than text and that a troll wants something that they can react to very quickly, like a tweet, whereas a podcast, are they really going to sit down and listen for 50 minutes before they start yelling at somebody? Um, It depends. Sometimes I can just literally see the title of the podcast or see who the guest is and that's enough for them. Like when I had Zoe on, I, I curated questions very carefully. I did not take anything on Twitter. You have to think about who your guest is. And again, some people just, or they just don't like you. They go, you're doing this thing. I don't like you. So I don't care who's on your show. I'm just going to give you a hard time. That's a good point. There's another podcast that they invited me on their show as a guest. I looked into their history and I declined. And so instead of having me on their show, they talked about my show and they ranted about it for a half an hour, everything they hate about it. Everything they hated could be traced back to the first five minutes of my first episode. Oh, there you go. And it's like, then why did they bother to invite you on? Probably to put me in the position of having to defend myself. <laughs> yeah, so not so funny story. And this isn't really podcast related. It's more um, the journalism that I do. Go for it. I had someone who was less than pleased with a piece I wrote for Mike. 
And they decided that, one, that they were entitled to my time. Two, that because I did not want to read their defense of a video game character, that I was um, clearly not actually an advocate for diversity. Then the kicker was they wanted to interview me on their Nintendo fan site. And I was like, do you really think that I'm going to spend five minutes talking to you at all? But it was that same thing where it's like, I, I see your product and what you put out, and you're not going to listen to me. You have already decided that I have X opinion, and now you're mad, and you want me to spend time justifying my a very mild opinion piece that you didn't have to read. So it always makes me wonder why people do things like that. It's like, clearly they didn't like what you were doing, and they invited you on their show, so that just opened the floodgates to basically talk poorly about you for something that has now changed and because your show evolves, hopefully it grows and you learn from your initial mistakes, but they decided they didn't like you based on that, those first few episodes. So that was their excuse. Well, as you said, they thought they were entitled to your time and there's a lot of entitlement on the internet and in the gaming industry. So why shouldn't they think they were entitled to even more of your time by having you as a guest on their show? Yeah, well, and, and that's one of the things where, it's hard, and I know we're getting off a little bit on tangent, but it's it's one of the things that I try to talk about because um, just the other day, Fangirl Jean, who I follow, was talking about the ways in which people respond because you are visible. And I'm not as visible as a lot of black women that are on Twitter, but I'm visible enough to where people think that they can tweet at me and demand my opinion or ask me to come like do, and, and I shouldn't say ask me to come do podcasts because usually a podcast is a longer, more nuanced conversation, usually. Uh, but they want that response from you, or they want to th- throw your name into something and ask you to be mad, be outraged entertainment. And it it's kind of, well, it is very off-putting, but it's very weird that, you know, this emotional labor and the expectation of it becomes part and parcel of being out there, being known, whether it's a podcast or you're writing or you're a games developer. It's just, it's it's really bad. You would think podcasting of all things would be something where it's like, Okay, you got to listen to 40 minutes before you find something you dislike. Do you really have that much free time? And apparently some people do. Yeah, and those are the people where it's just like, okay, I'm, I'm done talking to you. That's what the block button's for. Right. Yep. So the podcast, Fresh Out of Tokens, it's been off the air for two to three weeks now. Do you miss it? Um, yes and no, because my calendar reminded me today that I should be uploading an er- episode early for patrons. And I was like, there's no episode to update. Com- calendar, what are you talking about? Um, but my phone didn't update, basically. So it was that weird kind of, oh yeah, I normally would be doing this about now. It's a little weird not to be doing it. Yeah, I feel the same way about my other podcast, IndieCider. I get all these email pitches for indie games that they want me to cover, and I'm like, I don't really do that anymore. And I, I on one hand, I want to play your game. On the other hand, I'm glad I don't have to. Yeah, because for people that may not realize it, there's a vast difference between picking up a game and playing it for fun and playing it to write about it or playing it to, to stream it in front of an audience or even you know write a blog post about it. Because that changes the tone and reduces the enjoyment, especially after you've been doing it for a while. Right. It's nice to have these gamey experiences that we don't have to share, that we can just have for ourselves. Yeah, which is why everything I play is not always on camera, or on stream, I should say. (laughs) Well, good. I'm glad that you've struck that balance. Not everybody does, and they burn out too soon. Yep. There there are games where it's just like, you know what? This is mine. (laughs) You don't get to enjoy it either, because... 
I want to yell. I want to cuss. I want to drink while I play this game and, and not do that on Twitch. So, To be honest, if you did that on Twitch, it might actually strike a chord. Yeah, I'm not that kind of streamer. <laughs> it would be a very short stream because I, I'm a sleepy drunk. If anyone's ever hung out with me, um, you know, about four beers in, I'm, I'm ready for bed. So it would be a real short stream. <laughs> Well, I'll include a link to both the Fresh Out of Tokens archive and your Twitch channel in the show notes, as well as all the other resources we've mentioned, including uh, Gen Con, Orca Con. Is there anything else you want to discuss or plug? So other than Gen Con, um, which I'm going to for the first time, and I'm an industry insider, I'm also uh, speaking at PaxDev for the first time this year. So August 29th, uh, both panels are back-to-back in Grand Ballroom 1. So if you're in Seattle at PaxDev, I'll be doing two talks. And then I'm doing four or five panels, but they're spread out. So if you're in Seattle for PAX West, come uh, say hi. We'll also have a table in Diversity Lounge like last year. And then um, that's kind of it until later in the year for for me for travel. I'm up in the air about TwitchCon. But yeah, definitely PAX Dev and PAX West and Gen Con are next up on the docket. Since you mentioned enjoying the opportunity to get back into board games, are you going to PAX Unplugged? That is up in the air um, for two reasons. One, for money. Um, and two, I'm not sure if they're doing a diversity lounge. If they are doing a diversity lounge, then we'll probably try to have a presence there. If I can't go personally, then I would like to have someone kind of at a table representing any diverse games. Great. So I'll include a link to that just in case in the show notes. And also, where can listeners find you either on the web or on Twitter? On Twitter, I am at Cypher of Tier, C-Y-P-H-E-R-O-F-T-Y-R. My site is cypheroftier.com. Basically, anything Cypher of Tier is probably me. If it is uh, misspelled, extra letters, extra numbers, it's fake. Um, and as for I Need Diverse Games, our site is INeedDiverseGames.org. And again, we are 501c3, so we've got Patreon, we can take donations. And our Twitter is INeedDIVGMS, because unfortunately, I Need Diverse Games do not fit all in one Twitter handle. So yeah, INeedDIVGMS and INeedDiverseGames.org is where to find me. You know, before we go, I've always wanted to ask, where does Cypher of Tear come from? So I used to have the internet handle, embarrassingly. Cypher Sama was my old Xbox handle before you could pay to change it. But Tear is actually, for me, it's from the Nordic deity Tear. Um, and this is getting a little personal. But um, I followed the Nordic path, um, Asatru. And for me, Tear is the deity that, that I connected with. So Cypher, because I thought Scion count sounded a little pretentious, so I went with Cypher. <laughs> so Cypher of Tear, that is where that comes from. Now see, this demonstrates my ignorance and maybe some cultural appropriation, but we were talking about Dungeons & Dragons earlier, and in the D&D world of the Forgotten Realms, Tear is one of the gods there. And I, I didn't know that that had Nordic roots. Yeah, I'm not sure if the, the D&D deity Tear is related to the Norse deity Tear, uh, but usually when I mention that, people jump to D&D, which is kind of interesting. Uh, but no, I, I am referring to the Nordic deity Tyr, who sacrifices his hand to the Fenris Wolf in order to stave off Ragnarok. Wow. Okay, thank you for setting me straight. I appreciate that. No worries, guys. All right, so Tanya, it's been lovely to finally have you on Polygamer. Thank you so much for your time. You are so, so welcome. Thanks for having me, and I hope you have a wonderful night. This has been Polygamer, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net. Thank you.